Hello and welcome once again, and it is once again, to the Sitcom Club. I'm Gary, you're Till, are you not? This is true. Why haven't we been replaced yet? Because I was thinking, we've been at this now six years, so surely whoever's running this show should have got rid of us and then got us replaced with a couple of young dandies. Or maybe a whole team, maybe like five of them. It's quite a sort of broad spectrum of people. So they're all sort of aged between sort of 18 and 21, for example. Well, to answer a question you didn't ask, the reason we've been away so long is because we've been ill. Well, I've certainly been ill. I've had some really rotten health over the last year. You've had the gout, haven't you? That's about the only thing I haven't had. Pretty much just to stick a pin in a medical dictionary. This is a reasonable chance I might have had it. Plans significantly changed. So at one point we announced there was going to be a one-off, and then the one-off became, no, we're going to do three. Now all three of those titles that we planned have gone right to the bottom of the list, because even within the last week, when it's like, well, let's just put off recording for a week, Gary has stumbled across a treasure trove of obscure sitcoms, and also friends' well-wishers and people who at least don't wish us ill have sent us a few little obscurities here and there so we're we're presiding over a lot of sitcomage that we could talk about obviously not all of it's going to be able to produce an engaging podcast but we've got quite a lot of stuff to look at now but very little of it is famous indeed and absolutely none of it is up to date i think by this point people can live with that if they're if they're coming to us for discussions about fleabag I'm not saying it's never going to happen, but I don't think anybody would be surprised if we never got around to that one. I mean, I was just just briefly part of the BBC Free Generation. I watched it for the first couple of years, but I know where I am now, and I'm on Talking Pictures TV. I wish I was on Talking Pictures TV, but... Turnbull's Finest Half Hour with Michael Bates. What year is it from? 1972. Okay, so it's actually the youngest of the three shows we're going to be looking at. This is a bit of an odd one to describe. It didn't really remind me of anything. I mean, it kind of reminded me of uh, A Room at the Bottom because it's a TV show about a television company. But it wasn't like I could draw lots of lines from this two series that it later influenced. Or I guess it's possibly because it's a little bit inside. Uh, a little bit like the things we accused um, London Weekend Television of doing when they started out, having you know doing a comic play about winning franchises. Television comedies about television. Are there many? I'm just thinking. I mean, my mind's gone blank, so I'll let Gary, I'll let you have a think about it while I waffle here. I'm thinking, well, there's Drop the Dead Donkey. I mean, Drop the Dead Donkey is really about the characters and their interactions, and it's also an excuse for topical jokes. Hillary? Hillary is about Hillary, played by Marty Kane, and she is a researcher, writer on a chat show. But it's about her. The thing that strikes me about both Room at the Bottom and Turnbull's Finest Half Hour is they are about the industry. We're getting scenes in the studio bar, but they're talking about the direction the company's going in. Is this making sense to you, Gary? Hmm? I would also Hillary is in... not a sitcom about a television series. Drop the Donkey is a sort of a sitcom about a television station, but really it's more of a vehicle... Um, it does take satirical jabs at the state of television, so you have uh, Stephen Tompkinson's character and his lack of scruples. But, I mean, it didn't feel quite as inside. Turnbull's Funny Staff Hour feels like a kind of an inside joke that I'm not entirely privy to. 
because the other thing that's just popped into my mind and it, it's a drama it's a one-off play casting the runes that's another thing where yorkshire television uses yorkshire television premises to stand in for yorkshire television i don't think he's ever stated jan francis character works for yorkshire television but we get shots of the studios and i think we have a voiceover from and i can't remember which one of the announcers it is but it's one of the grand old voices like paul lally or graham roberts what's that drama that was on in the very early days of the new franchises in 68 I mentioned that, I can't remember, the, I think it was called The Franchise Trail. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't called that, it was called The Franchise Game, and it's no longer in the archives. I'd love to have seen it, because I'd love to have seen David Batley's take on David Frost. <coughs> so the idea behind Turnbull's Finest Half Hour is, somebody who works in television is having a party for all the people from work, including the boss, Sir Zachary Stein, and it just so happens that his brother-in-law turns up it's norman thingy is it was norman bird in this yes harold hudson yes yes so his brother-in-law clifford turnbull comes up played by michael bates played by actually it's michael bates as montgomery as clifford turnbull (laughs) he does mention rommel i think he does mention montgomery at some point but he's giving the exact same performance he gave in Patton when he was playing montgomery well supposedly he modeled this character on captain thomas brownrigg late of rediffusion again we're getting kind of inside despite what you might think sir zachary stein is more portrayed as a bluff self-made northerner what i mean is there aren't those kind of jokes you might fear from a 70s sitcom with a character with the surname stein so there's a party everybody's kind of decadent in their uh middle class slight 70s way uh, somebody's canoodling with a young woman in the underneath the courts. And who, who is old that? enough to be his granddaughter? Who, who is who is that young woman? Oh, who is it? It's Sally James. Oh, right. I did not notice. And Roddy Maud Roxby is is he in charge of arts or documentaries, something like that? He's talking about how fantastic he is and how he just has to snap his fingers and Maria Callas will come running over to be in a Pentagon Television production. Zachary Stein's taking a dim view of all this. He meets Clifford Turnbull, who is a very khaki-minded old soldier, and as a result, Turnbull is promoted to a position of authority in Pentagon television, and hilarity is meant to ensue, and for me, I have to say, it didn't. It is quite a fascinating wee show, though, isn't it? It's not hugely laugh-out-loud, but it is very interesting to see. It's very good for spotting faces, because people haven't mentioned yet who are in it. And also, just as you said, the number of sitcoms there are about the television industry is pretty few and far between. So if I'd been around then, this would have caught my eye just as Room at the Bottom did in the late 80s. And it's interesting sort of trying to work out, okay, are there little digs in here at the BBC or other regions and so on? And I know you've probably got this in your notes in a way, but we might as well mention this early on. You said that some of it may be spoofing early London weekend. And by curious coincidence, one region on the map didn't give this the peak time airing that it enjoyed <laughs> everywhere else and decided to air this at the rather curious time of half past 12 on Sundays. The same sort of time slot where later on you would have got things like Weekend World or you know Credo or something like that. Of course, that's where they shunted end of part one as well, isn't it? Sunday afternoons. But that was their own series, they've, wasn't they've it? Got a little, I know, but some, somebody somewhere has a little bit of an itch about... Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it should be fine. It's a fish-out-of-water thing. He's got this rather military mind. He's rather stuffy. 
and the people at Pentagon Television are kind of riding a bit of a gravy train. And that was the problem. Turnbull, insofar as he did have that much of a personality, I thought Michael Bitts was carrying it. There wasn't really much other than talking like an old colonel. He was quite likeable. And we have this little meeting in the studio bar between Roddy Mod Roxby and Liz Fraser and others, and they're all talking about ways of sabotaging his career. He gets promoted to head of light entertainment. I think there's like a guarded reference to the universe's version of uh, Stars on Sunday. You know, later on they're talking about all the ideas that got rejected, and one of them is bless the buses. <laughs> so it's all these rather up-themselves people trying to sabotage the work of somebody who's fairly likeable. Now, of course, we've only seen episode one. That's all we've had That's access to. That's another problem so with watching episode one is that it's all set up. I suppose you had the luxury of doing things in those days. There's an entire series we might be talking about on a future edition of the podcast, which also has episode one is purely set up. You really have to come back for episode two to get the meat of it. So at the end of it, um, Turnbull's been given all these stupid, terrible ideas. He's just picked one at random. The, the, the idea was they were hoping he was going to go through all these program proposals and it would just keep him tied up in knots. He picks one, he proposes it directly to Zachary Stein. Zachary Stein likes it, so that's it. They're going to make this show. And I can only hope that in the subsequent episodes, some of that fish-out-of-water comedy really paid off. I tell you another thing about this. The sound was terrible. There's nothing dampening the sound in the meeting in Turnbull's office. So there's a whole, I mean, it's it's a hackney joke anyway, and they overwrite it. So there's an, he inspects everybody's shoes, and Jonathan Lynn is this slightly cowed character. And he shouts at Jonathan Lynn's character about, these, those shoes are disgraceful, I want to be able to see the reflection of my own face in those shoes. They're a disgrace, what are they? And Jonathan Lynn says, they're suede. Turnbull says, what are they? And he says, a disgrace. But you can't really tell the difference between when he says swear and when he says a disgrace. His voice is bouncing off the walls. It sounds like the microphone is nowhere near him and not enough has been done to deaden the sound in the other parts of the studio. What a shambles! Why didn't Yorkshire Television get some stuffy old colonel to help them out? Yeah. And, of course, sadly, because we can't see the rest of these episodes yet, we haven't seen either Jack Haig or Barry Cryer playing roles in this series. So Turnbull gets a hmm, out of 10 from me. But I would be interested to see more. And it's probably something that... Yeah, well, you would be interested to see more. But but no, I think we're deeply fascinated by this kind of old, odd stuff. Let's say Talking Pictures decides to show Turnbull's finest half hour. I'm saying on the strength of this, would even the archive heads, the moderate, the casual archive heads, would they really be that eager to tune in for episode two? Yeah, hang on a minute. What was that thing that Talking Pictures showed a while back, though? Oh, what was it called? The, the thing about the aging GP, that Southern TV thing. What was it called? Well, that was a children's show, wasn't it? Yeah. Don't put a wedge between us and Talking Pictures. We want to be their friends. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm, I'm just saying that they don't necessarily draw the line at stuff just because it's not, you know, side-splittingly hilarious. You know, sometimes you might just get oddities that are that. They're oddities. They're interesting. I would like to know what sort of in-jokes there are about various ITV companies. In that entire okay, series. but if they do decide to show it and then people tweet us saying, this isn't very good, we can always just say, hey, we warned you. What they should do, if Talking Pictures show this, right, they should get, who could they get to do this? Um, right, who, who's, who's, a, who's a good TV historian? 
oh, um, your, your man, uh, Matthew Sweet, right? Record a couple of minutes with him at the beginning of each episode, and he tells you all the sort of ITV intrigue that was going on at that particular time. And you know the way they do it with the repeats of Drop the Dead Donkey, where they tell you what was going on in the news that week. So you sort of set the scene. Maybe show a clip of Stars on Sunday or something. Uh, do the names Ken Hoar and Mike Sharland mean much to you? Because they uh, were the, not so the much, writers behind this. Not so much Mike Sharland, but Ken Hoar I would always associate with Stanley Baxter. Right. And also with a series that we have yet to see, and I really want to see it, and I've been waiting years to see it, and that is Grundy with Harry H. Corbett and Linda Barron. When's that going to turn up somewhere? If the Fremantle archive is starting to pop up left, right and centre, let's have a bit of that somewhere. To my TV executives, you can have this idea for free from me. I won't charge for it, right? If you get it, if you get Grundy, you can say, hey, look, it's Harry H. Corbett from Steptoe Away and it's Linda Barron from Open All Hours. And this is a show that you've never heard of, but just concentrate on that bit, you know? Focus on the names. Don't worry about the show. So, yeah, let's, let's do that. Let's have Grundy on one of these channels soon. Now for one I think we can talk about a little bit more. So going back to 1970, uh, Girls About Town by Adele Rose. Well, Gary, let's get your thoughts first. Okay, so if you imagine an ITV answer to the Liver Birds, because the Liver Birds just started on BBC in 1969, and it's late 60s and it's swinging London and all that, and everybody's all sort of, not necessarily promiscuous, but certainly permissive and a bit late night lineup and all that kind of thing. And so now you've got, instead of purely husband and wife and the single beds that they would have had in the Dick Van Dyke show and so on, now you've got young people sort of being young people and having conversations about SEX on television, of all places, if you can imagine such a thing. And it's colour television as well, so you get to see the late 60s and all their vibrancy. And you know what George Roper thinks is going on behind the closed curtains everywhere for everyone except himself? This is more like a peek at what's really going on behind the veneer. So the name, Girls About Town, suggests, aye aye, there's going to be some, you know, behaviour being exhibited here. But actually, it's, it's quite tame and it's a bit more to do with hopes and aspirations and expectancy compared with reality and what really goes on which is quite mundane and so on so you did say color tv we've watched the only color episode that survives the rest are all tele recordings in black and white it's three series apparently uh piloted for thames with anna quayle and barbara mulaney later to become barbara knox fine famers Rita from hey. Coronation Street. <laughs> Rita Hayworth. Hayworth. No, uh, um, uh, Fairclough. That's it. But the series is made by ATV. You say it's quite tame. And yes, it is tame on the face of things. But I found there was just something a little bit crackling under the surface. What I'm saying is, if anybody was to ever write the definitive work about feminism in the British sitcom, and didn't mention this, they would definitely, definitely be not doing a good job. This is about what it's like to be about 30 and married in 1970. And as we all know, everybody in the old days was 20 years older than they would be now. So, in fact, I think the listing in the TV Times for the pilot mentions the characters feeling the seven-year itch. So it's Julie Stevens and Denise Coffey, their neighbours... They're both married, and they're just both hitting that point at which 
the marriage is beginning to get humdrum and routine and this opening episode really gave that sense. In the morning, the first thing, uh, Julie Stevenson's husband, Robin Parkinson. I mean, there are character names, but I never remember character names. Robin Parkinson is George Pilgrim. He gives his wife this whole talk about, you've mixed up the the shoe brushes. This one's for the brown shoes and this one's for the black shoes. And you can't do that. And there's that whole feeling of, is this what it is? Because we're in that funny little period. So the permissive society has happened. I'm not sure that the numbers are accurate here, but let's say that Mrs. Pilgrim is 30 and has been married since she was 23. So she just, just maybe missed a lot of the stuff that was happening. 1970, 30. She's the same age as John Lennon. But because of location, social class, any number of things, she, unlike other members of the silent generation, didn't quite get a bite of that cherry. And they're now beginning to wonder maybe what they missed. It's a little bit of thing we get driving Reginald Perrin. Uh, Reginald Perrin is much older, so it's it's getting to him much deeper. So there is this faint feeling uh, between the characters. Is, is, is it too late? Maybe. Is there a way of getting some of this action? And it's just something the way the characters talk to each other about. Hey, now actually, well, would this pass the Bechdel test? Well, I didn't bother auditing it for its representation in those terms. But I'm trying to be modern here. Oh, okay. Is that modern Tumblr speak? Oh, I'm sure there's something other than Tumblr now. Well, that's, sure that's all moved on. Well, that's what I mean. Is, is is Tumblr now out of date? I'm older than you. I wouldn't know. You see, this is it. We're sitting there looking outside going, is, is the world past us by? Yeah, but you're the one that's woke. So you're supposed to know about all these terms. So something about this struck me. I thought something about this. I bet there were a number of 30-year-old housewives watching this who suddenly thought, hey, I've never seen a TV show like this before. I've never seen women talking to each other the way women actually do talk to each other. This is my assumption from outside that this is right, but there was just something I thought, they're not talking to each other the way I'm used to women in 70s sitcoms. And let's face it, this is practically a 60s sitcom, just by a few months. I'm not used to them talking to each other this way. It's like the spectre at this particular feast is Carla Lane. Now, I can sometimes be very down on Carla Lane. So, I don't know. I just thought this was like a Carla Lane sitcom, but I liked it. Whereas Carla Lane, I sometimes... It might just be my irascible nature. Sometimes I find that Carla Lane characters can be a little bit self-involved in a way that I don't think we're necessarily meant to pick up on. Yeah, sometimes Carla Lane characters have a tendency to just go into monologues and then become Alan Bennett characters whilst there's still a lot of people in the room with them. Yeah, I think part of this is, so, it's it's two housewives, they're talking to each other, but there's just funny little bits. This one is all about, really, I suppose, um, they're wondering, do you think we could have affairs? <laughs> <laughs> there's an element of that running through this, and I don't think it's ever particularly serious. This episode of this sitcom is all about sex and it's all about women not getting the sex they want and it's not like George and Mildred it's not seaside postcard big housewives and little weedy husbands it's two women going you know we're still quite young and we're married why isn't it like a honeymoon every day and so there's a scene where both wives are kind of begging their husbands you know get the late train to work come on it's just fool around a little and meanwhile the men are complaining about starched collars yes 
and meetings. This is entirely from the woman's point of view. That's got to be fairly new for its time. Mm -hmm. After the complaint about the starch collars, the husbands walk out the door. The camera doesn't follow the husband. We don't find out his thoughts. We don't know what he's thinking on his commute. Right, the bit that really struck me, there's a kind of, I suppose the right word for it would be sauciness, but a different kind of sauciness. So both the uh, the husbands, Robin Parkinson and Peter Barlow, I want to say. Uh, Peter Baldwin. Points of Peter Baldwin, that's it. I knew he had the surname as a character in Coronation Street. And of course, he himself was in Coronation Street Indeed. as Derek, uh, married to... Um, Thelma. Mavis. No, Thelma. Thelma's the actress. At, no, no, Thelma. Thelma Barlow. Thelma Barlow, yes, I met yes. her. Yeah. Um, she played Mavis... Wilton, Derek Wilton. He played Derek Wilton, didn't he? He played, yes, De- right. he played, he okay, played Derek I've Hilton. Okay, myself. What did he play, Derek Hilton? No, in? that would have been that would have been so much better. The Derek Hilton story that just, should be yeah, just to turns BBC up into, right yeah. into the Rovers. You got a piano? Yeah, right. I'm going to play the crib theme tune. <laughs> I don't know why it's turned into a. Is this is this the wrong <laughs> is this the wrong location for us to mention that we've seen all of international <laughs> pop proms? There's no right location to mention that we've seen all of international pop proms, but we have. And it's basically like, as the name implies, there's some classical music going on in there, but also I do not recall any classical music well, going on in there. Okay, no, there are no, cl- it's there a classical big musicians orchestra there. playing big orchestral pop sounds and. That's something we can talk about. That is actually something I think is worth its own show, at least maybe in a different subheading. So anyway, right? Right, frustrated housewives. Yes. They're stuck at home because the husbands have gone off to some sort of reunion. And they're sat there watching a show called At Ease, which is not a real show. There was a show called At Ease. I did check that, but I won't bore you with the details. But they're watching a non-existent show called Atties presented by Shaw Taylor. Hey. And Denise Coffey's talking about... I don't know. She's talking about how sexy Shaw Taylor is or about how his ears are less sexy than some other guy on TV. And there's this bit when Shaw's talking... I think it's meant to be some sort of hobbies show. Again, I get the faint sense that it's like, oh, this is what housewives are meant to be watching. Hobbies at home and all this. And he brings out this rather phallic-looking cactus. <laughs> And he said, because you don't want to grab it by here, because otherwise you might get a painful prick. And Denise Coffey suddenly gives out this loud yelp that indicates, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what these characters are thinking. So it's basically the idea of housewives, when they're alone, they sit at home, they talk about sex, uh, and, they talk, and they talk about sex in a rather mocking, comedic way sometimes, and they laugh when Shaw Taylor says prick on telly. <laughs> I mean, for another bit that's quite near. So the opening titles start with this fantasy. It kind of looks like an advert for chocolates or cigarettes or some luxury item. Julie Stevens. Julie Stevens has an interesting face that she can play a suburban housewife, but in, in the opening titles, it looks like she's a spy or something because she's a forgotten Avengers girl. And there's this bit when she's reaching for a bottle of champagne and she holds it in a way that's a bit, eh? Not much plausible deniability the way she's grasping this bottle of champagne because the dream fades and it turns out to be a bottle of milk that she drops. So, yeah, Girls About Town, it's it's all about women and sex being spoken of in a way that women and sex probably didn't get much of a look in. And maybe even well, It probably now. wasn't spoken of before BBC Two. Yes. I mean, there's this whole bit about how Denise Coffey sat at the breakfast table trying to persuade 
Peter Coronation Street to stay behind. <laughs> and there's the whole thing about how she wasn't actually wearing a bra. There's this bit, they go to an electronic shop and there's a girl there in kinky boots. She's probably only like five years younger, but there's this sudden sense that they're like from completely different generations, even though they're not that different in age. So I would really like to see the rest of Girls About Town. And if the rest of Girls About Town becomes available, I was going to say we need to do it. No, if the rest of Girls About Town becomes available, then maybe we should turn this space over to two women. But that's exactly what I said right at the outset. I said, why have we not been replaced yet? And I've told you because Girls About Town isn't available for everybody yet. Talking Pictures hasn't put it up. Network haven't handled it. They're too busy hanging around with Monty Python and his pals. Well, yeah, and I think we, we've both so, felt the the impact of that in the past week. So, yes, if you want us to be replaced by young, woke people who aren't middle-aged white men, then obviously it all hinges on the release of a sitcom from 1970. Should we, and I already know the answer to this, the answer to this is no, should we do a Python cast when that Blu-ray set comes out? And then, I don't have anything new or insightful to say about Monty Python. And then, like, in, in really excruciating detail, talk about every single bloody sketch that's on them. No, I would feel like I was taking the place of somebody who knows more, cares more. Not that I don't care, but there, there are people for whom this is much more central to their comedic world than it is for me. Obviously, I pre-ordered. Oh, yeah. And I think... Uh, Gary pre-ordered, and Gary doesn't even have anything to play it on. Yeah, because I haven't got a Blu-ray player, because I've never needed one before, because all the stuff I watch is on VT, made in 1972 and what have you. But is it not the case that the, the Blu-ray set... Have they sold out, by the way? Did they actually sell out? I've heard no news. Non-special editions will come out later. Whether the extras will be missing, or, or if it's just a matter of the limited edition comes in a nicer box, there should be... Python Blu-rays for all by the end of the year, I'm hoping. The reason that I actually hit the button was because I'd been explaining to Till and to also to Tyler, who's joined us many a time on the show, that I once held in my hand, in public, in a shop in Newbury, the newly released DVD of I'm Alan Partridge, Series 1, on the day it came out. And I thought, ah, I'll get it sometime and put it back on the shelf. And within days, of course, that DVD wasn't available because it was recalled for clearance issues, never to be seen again. So I thought, okay, if there's any possibility that any of this stuff suddenly falls foul of clearance issues and the vanilla sets that come out later on aren't actually the full thing and they've got edits and what have you, then I'd never forgive myself. So I thought, oh, I'll just do it. So, yes, indeed. I'm sure there'll be lots of Python casts out there come the end of the year. I forgot to mention that Adele Rose, certainly for me and probably for other people, um, associate her name with Coronation Street. She must have written a lot of them, because I recognised the name immediately. Ah, I know what it is. But this isn't a Granada show. No, I've had the wrong theme tune in my head for the last 20 minutes. I've had the theme tune to Take Free Girls from 1969 right. in my head, which we've never seen, but na, it's na, something na, na, that... Na, na, uh, yeah, there you go. That's uh, what, yeah. yeah. And even if you've never seen it, you know of it because it appears in... Isn't that 5-4? I don't know, but... We're crossing the streams now. The thing is that that is shown as a trailer in all that lovely continuity that's been doing the rounds for years and years and years about the first night of BBC One Colour, which ironically actually only survives as black and white, but there you go. So, let's say you've been in 1970, yeah, you've been watching Girls About Town, but that's not enough comedy for the week. A couple of nights later, around about 10.30... Inside George Webley would turn up. I've been looking at some old TV Times' 
to research inside George Webley and found that I kept coming across Girls About Town at the same time. Right. And of course, this is the one that starts the earliest because this show started in 68. This is one with an entirely missing first series. It's by Keith Waterhouse and Willis Hall, who gave us... Well, Keith Waterhouse gave us Billy Lyre, Waterhouse and Hall gave us Budgie, and, and adapted Wurzel Gummidge. There you go. And directed by David Mallett, who directed the first few series of Ken Everett Video Show. Here's an interesting thing that cropped up when I was looking at the TV Times and they're mentioning, inside George Webley, new sitcom with Roy Kinnear. They describe him as an ex-satirist. So... I mean, in our minds, Roy Kinnear, he's, he's kind of, in some ways, like a Cribbins-esque figure. He's just, he's always in things. Even if the character he's playing might not be nice, he's nice. He's kind of a comforting presence. And yes, of course, 1970, people probably still associated him with TW3. Um, I believe that infamous black and white minstrel show parody, Absolutely No Holds Barred, take on the civil rights situation done via parody of the Black Eye Minstrel Show from TW3. I think the serious headline that introduces it is read out by Roy Kinnear. So he would have been seen as a bit of an edgier figure then. Now, this is one where I didn't really get much out of it, but I got the feeling that in some ways we might have even been watching the absolute worst possible episode to get a sense of the show. This is Series 2, Episode 2. Round about the point when you can actually start loosening the characterization of a character because we're all familiar with them. Because the principle that Inside George Webley rests on is he is a pub bar. He's bought an Encyclopedia Britannica. He's read them all. Anytime anybody says anything to him, he reckons he's a bit of an expert, just like Peppa Pig's daddy. And actually, he wants something depressing, Gary. It's mentioned there's a whole introductory thing in the TV Times about him giving some biographical information. Uh, it mentions he's 40, Oof. but he's 40 in 1970 again, so <laughs> different rules. Oh, speaking of Peppa Pig, by the way, do you want to know something about Peppa Pig? You might have seen it was doing the rounds on Twitter the other day. According yeah. to Wikipedia, Peppa Pig is 7 foot 1 inches tall. Okay, right. Why? I don't know. That's what it says on Wikipedia, so it must so be So they true. didn't compare it to... Okay. I've not seen anything that indicates... But, I mean, it's obviously a different reality, so she's... Yes. Yeah, it's some manner of sapient, porcine being. Who knows what size. But it is remarkable that Peppa Pig's dad and Barry Welsh are one and the same. That seems odd, somehow. And her grandmother was in I, Claudius, in May to December. There you go. So George Meredith Webley, he's a bit of a bore. And I don't think that entirely came across in this one. But we're now at that situation, two episodes into the second series... We can kind of rest a little. Everybody knows what he's like. Uh, one of the things that apparently distinguished this sitcom was that it was full of guest stars. I think it was Graham Stark as a tramp. Do you want to know a list of guest stars? Because I've got a list of guest yes, stars. Yes, and in, if in I know right what now. kind of part they played, I'll shout it out. Right, here we go. This is one hell of a list. This is more people than you would get in one of those films of the 60s, like The Sandwich Man or something like that. So, most of these people, in fact, I think, let me just check, yeah, in fact, everybody here that I'm going to mention is only in one episode. So Roy Kinnear and Patsy Rollins are the principal couple in all 12 episodes. Then we've got single appearances by Les Dawson. As a gardener. Hattie Jakes. I don't know. I, I, think, I think I know that uh, Les Dawson's a gardener, Graham Stark's a tramp. Beyond that, my brain's just gone completely blank. Though um, Hattie Jakes is in the episode called Brief Encounter, so maybe that's a clue. 
Dandy Nichols, you mentioned Graham Stark as Smelly. Max Wall, James Bolam as a policeman. Peter Butterworth. And Frank Thornton's in that episode as well with James Bolam. Yeah, he's uh, Mato D in uh, the episode. Peter Butterworth, who is playing Dr. Horny Man. J.G. <laughs> <laughs> Devlin, who is a somewhat against type playing Irishman. <laughs> Clive Dunn, Gordon Kay, Jack Woolgar from In for a Penny. Hey, Glenn Worsnip. What did we see Glenn Worsnip in recently? We saw him in something, didn't we? What did we see him in? I'll tell you in a moment. Oh, hang on a minute. Was it in, what do you call it? His and Hers? Yes, there yes, you go. Yes, it was in His and Hers. Yes, and um, Julian Oxford. Spoilers, uh, we're probably going to talk about His and Hers. Yes. That's in a future show. And the one name that I left off this list, because it's a lovely segue into this episode, Roy Hudd. Now, I've said <laughs> that I'm assuming that, that what is happening here is we can now loosen up George's character. Because I think the pub bore element doesn't quite come across. A lot of the stuff I've seen descriptions in the TV Times is meant to get through to you that this is the kind of guy you'd dread if he came up to you and saw you reading a book that he'd read or reading a book that he was going to pretend to have read. In this, there's nothing too bad about George. He doesn't come across as too much of an oppressive presence. But I'm wondering, to what extent were the other episodes like this in that he's the comedy maypole around which, in this one, Roy Hudd dances? Or is Roy Hood playing against the usual guest star type? Uh, I have my suspicions. So do you want to just talk about the specifics of the plot of this one? Okay, so George decides that in true sitcom manner, it would be a good idea to get fit, as sitcom characters often do, for a week. Well, because he's been told by the barman, played by Jack Walgar, that some bloke who's usually in there has died. Yes. So he gets himself a personal trainer who is Simon, played by Roy Hudd. And now, who is the campest sitcom character that you can think of that people will have heard of? <laughs> Was that just to me or the audience? Yes, no, to, to, to yourself. Well, the way I described it, we were telling Tyler the other day about what we were doing, and I described Roy Hudd's character. Well, let's go back, because it just reminds me of when Mel Brooks produced his musical version of The Producers. And somebody says... What about the gay characters? Is this going to be like the 60s one? Because the gay characters, you know, it was a little bit uncomfortable. I said, well, they've kind of made it better by making it worse. They've gone so outrageously over the top that you can't really take this as kind of a legitimate (laughs) portrayal. You can't actually let any prejudices rest upon that portrayal because it's just too preposterous. And there's an element of that. So Simon the gym owner, gym teacher, gym coach is meant to be... Well, no, he pretty pretty much effectively states that he's gay. He's not just, like, a little bit flamboyant. And the description I came up with is... I know it's lazy to think of a person, think of a drug, add them, but really, Duncan Novell on Angel Dust. (laughs) He is just pitched way, way up there. Beyond everything you can think of. And again, I suppose in some ways it gives him a bit of power. The obvious mean 70s joke is kind of a backs-to-the-wall thing. Now, at one point, George says, should we bend over and touch our toes? And Simon says, oh, fast cat, I've been caught out that way before. So he's the one making the jokes. I think George says, you know, have you been doing this long? And he goes, you're trying to find out how my age, a girl is as old as she feels. <laughs> He's wearing like a leotard and shorts, but he's wearing the leotard over the shorts, so you just see the legs of the shorts poking out. It gives this bizarre effect. And 
every time George speaks to him, this is a film sequence in a gymnasium. The next thing we see is a different shot in a different part of the gymnasium. So there's this sense that as George is talking to him, he's practically teleporting around. Where shall we start? And we suddenly see Simon hanging off some parallel bars. Going, Let's start at the very beginning. It's, it's like he then like appears from behind George. He's just everywhere. He's some sort of trickster spirit. And it's really bizarre, and I'm just wondering, so was that what the show was like? Was was Roy Kinnear fairly normal? In which case, he kind of bruising his pub bar element. I've seen a picture of Les Dawson as Mr. Marigold, and he has, like, teeth blacked out, and he's holding a sack, probably a sack of fertilizer. So I can imagine that that was something that was a, a running thread through this. Roy Kinnear can just deliver, now what, and then what happened lines, and the uh, guest star can just chew the scenery and it out. I like the fact that there are nice little surreal moments in this as well. Characters are allowed to break the fourth wall on occasion. Yes. And you have an action replay of one of the <laughs> uh, attempts at, at getting George Fett. I think it's a long jump. Just things like that which don't normally happen. But not just sitcoms. not just an action replay, a YTV action replay. <laughs> no, no, it's I, I, branded. I have, no, I do. I have I have a slight issue with this because I think I'm right in saying that Yorkshire didn't actually have slow motion facilities in 1970. <laughs> I think it was only London Weekend that had that in real time. So, but no, I, I like the fact that it can do silly things like that, but it doesn't overdo them. It doesn't go mad with that. It, it reminded me a little bit of remember the the opening to um, Magnificent Evans. You know, the photograph of the, the car. Yes. Just daft things like that, which just sort of catch you unawares. The only person I remember breaking the fourth wall is a man standing at a bus stop. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Heard of the permissive society, but this is ridiculous. But he, he addresses that to us. And Roy Hood's character, if given half a chance, would break the fifth wall. He'd break the veil between worlds. <laughs> that, that, that clip can surely be dropped into a lot of different shows and films yes. uh, in, in the future. And probably could be deployed as a meme. This is the show that I would like to see more of the most. It's a show that I enjoyed the right. most out of the three. And yeah, it is a pity about that first series, but... Okay, I know we've said that he's meant to be a bore and an irritant, but this is a kind of sitcom I really think you don't get. It's about a little man, but he's not portrayed as pathetic or tragic. I've said this before. When dark comedy became a thing, it almost became a way of people to kind of distance themselves from certain generations and classes what's the word punching down Mm -hmm. there was a certain element of that so it's like look at all these pathetic sad broken characters but i'm not like that i'm the one bringing this to you but there's a faint feeling of where's the sympathy where's the actually getting down there and being engaged with this this feels kind of like a gladiatorial thing (laughs) right all of us sitting in the seats watching this tragedy unfold we're not as old as them we're not necessarily the same social classes them so we've got this vicarious distance from which we can watch this as you may have noticed politics has been a bit unprecedented recently has it and gary is interested in politics or at least he has a higher politics threshold than i do before i just get utterly disgusted and it kind of drains the colors from life but we still keep coming back to there are certain things missing we've called it before the breaking of the thread there are certain things missing that i think made some of the resentments worse at the time of speaking they haven't gone out yet the dad's army Mm. is that gold yes but there was an article 
and some statements from the cast statements like <laughs> anything uh, you do say maybe something say. said by the cast about how surprised they were at the vociferousness of the audience reaction and one of them said it makes me understand brexit and yes yeah, sometimes it's possible to read too large of a political dimension to sitcoms but i think there are certain people who have not been catered to Mm-hmm. This is not talking about legitimate economic worries. No, this is just talking about some people are no longer the target audience. And I see things like Inside George Webley, I kind of understand. Right, so we talk about white middle-aged people, which, yeah, I think maybe there are a few too many presenting podcasts. Always eyeing the exit, but I've got to stay true to the list. Once we get everything done off the list, I'm out of here. Yeah, but we've got to, we've got to stop adding things to the list then. I know, but they keep turning up, don't they? Do they? Yes. I haven't seen In for a Penny on Blu-ray. We've watched the non-transmission pilot of Sharon and Elsie. That's true. We didn't even know there was a non-transmission <laughs> pilot of Sharon and Elsie this time last week. <laughs> Stuff keeps turning up. But anyway, I'm going to say there's some middle-aged people who are kind of out of the picture. And I don't think they're all white. Because they are middle-aged and they're lumpy. They're not pretty enough. George Webley's an example of something that's kind of gone. Can I give you an example of who I think you're talking about? Go on. Do you remember... You remember the titles better than I do, because I don't, I don't remember all the individual ones, but the last Victoria Wood Christmas show, and was it about 2009 or something like that? She wasn't altogether okay. happy with it because she felt that it wasn't the way that she wanted it to be and there was people involved that she didn't necessarily... And it was shown want. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. I think she'd been given a verbal guarantee it would be Christmas Day. Do you remember that bizarre framing device that it had with the middle-aged couple who were seen watching the show throughout? Yes. That was odd, wasn't it? And yes. It, it, it sort of made me think after a little while, um, are they supposed to be me? And are they me being laughed at for sitting in front of this? What's what's the deal? I could also say, we just spoke about him right at the beginning of the show, a character like Rob Brydon's in Gavin and Stacey where he's not a tragic figure like he is in things like Marion and Jeff or Human Remains or something like that. But he's always just the sort of the silent butt of the joke because he's a middle-aged man with middle-aged interests who occasionally wants to sort of join in with the current zeitgeist is, but he doesn't quite get it because he's a few steps removed from it. Do you know what I mean? Does any of that make sense? Well, what we're talking about is diversity. It's a good thing. But it's not just a matter of moving the spotlight around. No, the spotlight has to come out for diversity. So it's not about certain people getting pushed out of the spotlight, but the system we've got, at least the cultural system we've got, doesn't work like that. So we have a form of diversity that, let's face it, is still being applied by white middle-aged men. I think I think we know what this is. Um, really- who are just sort of feeling the pinch. What this is just about us um, sticking more pins in no, our I've, no, I of think, Michael Grade. No, I think we know what this is really about. And everybody who's listening knows what this is really about as well. It's about Radio Two cancelling the organist entertains, isn't it? Well, there is that. Yes, I feel your pain. No, the concept of diversity in some ways has been hijacked by a certain kind of bourgeois media critic. And it's a stick used by white people to hit other white people. And yet again, they they don't really care about non-white people, people of colour, whatever term you want to use. What I'm saying is, eat the rich, full communism now. (laughs) And also sitcoms about lumpy old men 
it's like the thing we keep saying. We we always have this vision that there's somebody somewhere, the more than one person in the BBC is absolutely furious that Still Up and All Hours is a hit. Yes. Yeah. And Still Up and All Hours has its own moves towards diversity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colvin de Gear. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, they're still in it. Yeah. Yeah, good. You can almost tell, and this is almost the way it works, is um, Sansa walks in. She is a gossipy northern housewife in a headscarf. Oh, we've got to have diversity. Sansa walks in. She is a gossipy northern housewife in a hijab. <laughs> there you go. And it just pulls it off without it being made into a big deal, if that makes any sense. It's just well, it's, it's an interesting happens. thing looking back, because, I mean, when you look back at old stuff, there's lots of cringes. But it is interesting that when they do diversity, there's a strange unselfconsciousness. Okay, right. First time Catwoman was played by an African-American actress. 1968. Eartha Kitten, of course, you know, if Julie Newmar's not available, if Lee Merriweather doesn't want to reprise it from the film. Right, somebody, she's a cat. That's the next name on the list is Eartha Kitt. The world kind of stared on its hinges. What about the time when Doctor Who was produced by a woman? Could you just... 1963. So anyway, yeah, So in the future, we will have to... Uh, Protecting the old ways from being abused, protecting the new ways from me and for you. What more can we do? As the kinks put it. You and me, me and you. Lots and lots for us to do. Again, they changed the theme tune from their sort of folk strum to reggae. The world stared on its axis. That's the peculiar thing, isn't it? That we had these small moves towards diversity in the olden days. And now everybody's just fighting. We've been sold the concept of a culture war. And once we've been sold that concept, we've then ended up fighting it on behalf of the people who don't really care. The people who only care about being profitable or being cool. On the plus side, I'm... On the plus side, the sea levels will rise and kill us all. No, you keep on saying that. That's what they said in 1860. Yeah, and they're all dead now. Well, yes. Now, on the plus side, I do know that somebody, I won't name them, but somebody is watching Are You Being Served right now and making notes of the edits. That's the kind of content that we, we need in this show. And I have been assisting on that front. I've been sourcing unedited editions of How Being Served on the Quiet. See, never mind, never mind your shortages at the border and all this kind of stuff. If you want any stuff, you know, after Brexit and what have you, just come to old Private Walker here. You'll see you right, right. Do you want to make a statement about what we shall be doing next week or do you want to leave it open to question? Because I have a list in front of me. Do you? I do. I do have a list in front of me. Do you want me to sell you what's, what's next yeah, you on this tell, list? Yeah, you tell me. You tell me right. what's next. Yeah. Next on the list... Lame Ducks with John Dottine, hey. Lorraine Chase, and the guy who played the pyromaniac whose name escapes me, and Brian Murphy. Who we haven't seen yet, but we're, we'll see him by the time we record it. And again, we get to talk about things because that's kind of about a little man, but is it being a little bit too obsessed with all oh, women, they're evil? Well, we're going to take it apart and find out how it works. Or are we, Gary? Well, who knows? Okay, so maybe next week... Or maybe next month, you know, maybe sometime about 2032. We'll be back here for Lame Ducks. Oh, you know podcasts, right? Yes. And you know how sometimes on this podcast we speak about Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet? Mm-hmm. Well, I understand that they've also worked on films as well, haven't they? This is true. Including, I think I'm right in saying, the 1985 satirical comedy, Water. Which I remember because of the uh, In at the Deep End edition in which not Chris Searle, Paul Heine, had to be trained to play a hard man in it. I haven't listened to the particular show you're talking about, but I'm sure that's going to come up. Well, the particular show that we're talking about is Cinema Limbo, and episode 69 of Cinema Limbo is discussing water. Hey, hey, hey. And that's out now. 
So we'll be back at some point in the future. We may well be talking about lame ducks. So the question is this. How on earth would somebody, if they were so inclined, get in touch with us via the power of the internet and say things to us? Well, uh, our audience is probably old enough to still use email because there's always feedback at sitcomclub.com. And as the name suggests, that email address is attached to the domain sitcomclub.com, which is where you can find all of the previous editions of the show, as indeed you can at podnos.com, where you'll find all manner of quite literally hundreds and hundreds of other podcasts as well. And you can find us on Twitter at the sitcom club and also probably look for Jaffa Cakes for Proust and you'll find us on Facebook as well and all manner of things and everything and there you are any road up thank you very much indeed for joining us we have been the sitcom club but we continue to be the sitcom club and we'll be back very soon with another adventure in the realms of indeed the sitcom club